Hi there, welcome to SFM Literature. Lovely to have you. Three hours ahead of words and writing and books and reading and all sorts of other things besides. It's a very full show today as the Franchuk Literary Festival has uh, taken up quite a lot of time. But uh, hopefully we're going to be doing it a little bit of justice as well with a couple of items from the festival. So, thanks very much to the team. That's Sulu Fellow Pelo and uh, Phineas Ntoba in Joburg and Rob Parkin down here in Cape Town. And as you heard, I'm Nancy Richards. So let me tell you what we've got on the lineup for today. So first up, we're starting Sheena Duncan, the late Sheena Duncan, who for so many years, you will remember, was the face of the Black Sash that celebrates 60 years in a few days' time, I think on Tuesday. Going to be talking to Anne-Marie Hendricks, who's the author of what's been described by Mary Burton as a rich and honest portrayal which demonstrates the power of dedicated resistance to injustice. Such was Sheena Duncan, so we'll be chatting to Anne-Marie about the book that she has written with an introduction by... By, uh, the arch Desmond Tutu, no less a person then. Our book club feature today, our member is Ghanaian German-born author. She's Mamle Kabu. She's in South Africa. She's been at the Franschuk Literary Festival. She's going to be giving a part of a workshop that's happening tomorrow night, also in Cape Town. Give you all the details of them. But she'll be talking about books in her life, the books that she writes, and uh, and all the sort of things that uh, you might expect. So look forward to hearing again what she has to say. Then, in text, we're going to be turning to poetry. We were to have spoken to Patricia Schoenstein, who's lost her voice, which is not a good thing for a performance poet. So better soon, Patricia. Instead, though, we're going to be talking to a couple of the poets who featured at the Friendship Literary Festival. We're going to be talking to Tabo Jijana, as well as Adrian van Veek, and hearing a little bit about their feelings, on, you know, the impact that poetry has had on them and their work, and also the difference between poetry performed and poetry published. It's an ongoing debate, that one. Then after the news at two o'clock, our book two is called Birthmark. It's by Stephen Klingman. Stephen's going to be coming into our Cape Town studio. And Birthmark is his memoir. It's uh, in which he describes his own discovery of identity. So we'll be finding out a little bit more about who he is, he and his birthmark. Bookshelf today, well, in fact, we have no reader giving us a recommended title because instead we're going to be hearing some very important titles from Ben Williams of the Sunday Times. And last night at the festival, the Friendship Literary Festival, they announced the um, the shortlist for the Barry Ronga Fiction Prize and the Alan Payton Award. So look forward to hearing uh, what those titles are. Our story feature is, in fact, a story. It's uh, the story of Anna P, as told by herself. And that's by Penny Busetto, who is the winner of the European Union Literary Award, who was also on the long list for the Sunday Times Literary Award. So bumped into her very briefly last night. Look forward to hearing more about the rather haunting story, a lot to do with memory and lack thereof, of Anna P. That's our story feature. Then at three o'clock, uh, Roger Webster will be giving us another tale. I'm not sure what he's going to be chatting about, but uh, rest assured, he will have one for us. And then in our back page feature, 50 ways to innovate. Well, you might be wondering what on earth that means. Douglas Kruger, the inimitable Douglas Kruger, who's a professional speaker, who's uh, ubiquitous on this program, but he's also a man of great wisdom when it comes to speaking. And his latest book is called Relentlessly Relevant, 50 Ways to Innovate. So look forward to hearing what Douglas has to tell us. And then to close the Sunday play, as always. So that's what we've got lined up. If you want to give us a call at any stage, you're welcome. 0891-104-207 is the number to call in Joburg. 0891-104-207. If you'd like to pop us an email, we're at books at safm.co.za. And if you want to find us on Facebook, do. It's SAFM Literature on SAFM, I think. In fact, it's just SAFM Literature. So there you go. Whew, that's all the housekeeping. So hopefully you will stay with us for as much as you possibly can of the next three hours. All sorts of interesting stuff. Stay tuned. Duncan, the late Sheena Duncan, lived her life for justice. She went out of her way to make sure there was justice for the people on the receiving side of a system that was terribly evil. Well, that's how Frank Shikane described the late Sheena, who died in 2010 of cancer at the age of 77. And it's also how Anne-Marie Hendricks opens the first chapter of her book, all about Sheena. Um, Sheena, who was, in fact, for so many years, the face of the Black Sash, an organization co-founded by her mother, Jean Sinclair. 
Uh, and the Black Sash, incidentally, will just in a couple of days' time be celebrating its 60 years. It's not truly amazing, and all the work that they've done in those and continue to do, I, I hasten to add. Well, in the words of the uh, late, uh, no, he's certainly not late, heaven help us all, absolutely not, of uh, the archer emeritus uh, Desmond Tutu, Sheena was a woman who made God proud, and she was, she's a woman who's been much on the mind of Anne-Marie, I imagine, over a long period of time during which she's been writing this book, and we have her on the line to tell us all about it. Hi there, Anne-Marie. Hello, Nancy. Lovely. And hello to your listeners. Yeah, thank you very much. I imagine that uh, Sheena has been occupying your mind for a good long time writing this book. Definitely, yes. She was also very much part of my life yes. before I wrote her book, but um, she's been a great part of my life for the last three and a half plus years. She was a great part of your life because you were involved? Just give, tell, give, give us the explanation. Well, I was a member of the Black Sash, and I was also very fortunate for some period to be employed by the Black Sash, first as a rural field worker and then in the advice offices and ultimately as the national coordinator of the advice offices, which role I actually took over from Sheena was the small difference that I got paid for it. And Sheena did her 30 years of service to the Black Sash on a totally voluntary basis without a cent of payment. Wow, so we had is. a close association as, as workers, you might say, yeah. except I was in Cape Town and she was in Johannesburg. But our work overlapped a lot. Yeah. Was she, was she an inspiration to you on a personal level? Anne-Marie? Absolutely. Mm. And became even more so when I wrote her book, or the book about her life, because that has been really one of the huge privileges of my life. It was like being invited into her life on the level of an intimate friend. And not many people had that honor with Sheena. So getting to know her better was even more of an inspiration because I think what happens when one writes about somebody is the parts of them that touch you, that resonate with the parts of you that, that are similar, one might say, although I would not ever want to really compare myself to Sheena, they, they kind of make those parts flourish. And so... In that sense, also, she was a great inspiration for me to be more myself. Mm. And it seems to me that she must have been an inspiration despite herself because she was such an, uh, such an unbelievably busy person who divided herself into so many pieces. She wouldn't necessarily have time to be actively mentoring people. But let's just go back to, to Sheena's early life because it was her mother, Jean Sinclair, who was one of the co-founders of the SASH. That's right, yes. So she would have grown up with the, the ethos, ethos of the sash in her life from, from very early? Well, not really. Sheena, in fact, got married the same year that the Black Sash was founded. And uh, just under a year later, Sheena moved with her husband, Neil, to Zimbabwe, which was then Salisbury. And she was not around until 1963, by which time Jean was in full flight. But the Black Sash, as you pointed out in your introduction, was founded 60 years ago, which was on the 19th of May, 1955. And Sheena got married just a little while before that. But nonetheless, I imagine that her mother's spirit of justice would have imbued itself into Sheena's psyche. Absolutely, mm. yes. And the arch poses that question in his introduction. He says, um, did she get it from mother's milk or from her faith? And he kind of leaves it up to us to, to decide in a way. And I think deciding is absolutely impossible because I think there are a lot of people with mother's milk issues, if you like, and there are a lot of people of faith. And... Sheena is quite an extraordinary being in, in herself, mm. in the way she manifested her birthright and her faith. The archers, well, he, we know that he has a wicked sense of humour, and I love it in his intro that he says, Sheena smoked endlessly, and I teased her about being a chimney. Yes. She had a great sense of humour with a brilliantly sharp mind, and she was not afraid to challenge or to laugh. I can still hear her chuckle 
or her half uh, half hoarse voice saying yes but Desmond it was wonderful having her in our church councils lovely lovely um, warm memories not just sort of yes. you know the word inspirational is it always sort of feels sort of a bit ethereal somehow and actually she was very real very down-to-earth sort of person she absolutely was yes and I think that was what in a way made her so inspirational to so many people because whoever you were she saw she saw you and in seeing you she she kind of enabled you to be more you and because she set such an incredible standard for herself and for others she enabled you to be more of the best part of you because she trusted that you could that was the, the benefit of the people that she worked with, like yourself. But she also, uh, you know, saying right at the beginning there, she lived her life for justice and she went out of her way to make sure there was justice for the people, which is what the Black Sash was and still is all about, ensuring that yes. people get justice. But she, she didn't have a, a scrap of legal training, but I believe that she was an unbelievably uh, cannily-minded legal person. She was, yes. Um, I'm not a lawyer myself, so I'm not fit to comment on that. Mm. But people of the caliber of Jeff Butlinder and Kathy Satchwell and Alison Tilly, all of whom are lawyers, have noted that she had an extraordinary capacity to not only read the law and understand it in legal terms, but then also to be able to unravel it to its, uh, not simple in a simplistic sense, but it's simple statements and then also to look for the loopholes because of course during apartheid the laws were abominable and one did not want to apply the laws one wanted to find the loopholes through which one could almost turn the law against itself or pull it up short and Sheena was absolutely brilliant at that she could she could also go to the lawyers, Jeff tells us in one part of the story, that Sheena was not phased by the legalese around something. She would go to the lawyers and she would say, this is what the community has said they want. Now find the way to do it legally, because Sheena would always work within the law. She never, to my knowledge, did anything blatantly illegally. Mm. But she would make the law work for the communities, and she made the lawyers work too. I think there are many fine lawyers today that are finer at their work because of her than they would have been had she not been around. Mm. She wasn't phased by much by the sounds of it. I'm just looking at the uh, the chapter on the abolition of the death penalty, and I'm looking at a letter that she wrote uh, back in 1992 to the Minister of Foreign Affairs um, and to the State President on behalf of the Black Sash and says, Dear Mr. Borter, I, I urge you to intervene to prevent the hanging of three persons in Baputitswana on Tuesday. Should these executions proceed, it can only but exacerbate tensions in that region and in the Transvaal as a whole, which will in turn have an adverse effect on the process towards a negotiated future. And so she goes on, I fail to see how killing people by judicial execution can teach other people not to kill our country is in dire straits. I trust you have the will. Yours sincerely, Sheena Duncan. So she was not above writing to people in high places, expressing in no uncertain terms her feelings and that not of the search. Not at all. Not at all. No. She, in fact, there's a lovely passage in the book where Alison Tilly tells in the post-apartheid era of, of uh, visiting the then Minister of Welfare, Geraldine Fraser Moliketti, on issues of child support, which which the, the Black Sash is still very much engaged in today. And if I may read a little bit for mm. you, you, you'll also pick that up. Um, Alison tells a story of how Sheena really used to grill her about the issues within a law. And so we had this new social justice thing, and off they went to a meeting. And um, Sheena, well, actually, Alison says, Sheena had hurt her foot and couldn't wear a shoe on that foot. She had crutches, and for some reason she decided it was better to go barefoot than with one shoe. Her glasses were stuck together with the lastoplast. Well, I just 
Well, it's difficult to describe because my respect for Sheena was such that if that was the way she was going to the meeting, then that was the way. Yet at the same time, I couldn't help but think we really could have put on a more professional kind of show. But they went into the meeting and they had done the calculations and the minister wasn't too happy with it. So they had a technical discussion and then the minister ended up looking at Sheena and saying, well, you really have to understand you are either with us or you are against us. Sheena sort of settled into her chair and said, Minister, when you are right, we will be with you. And when you are wrong, we will be against you. And that kind of sums up how she was with authorities, even those of the new dispensation who she respected enormously. She did not kowtow to to any kind of line. She had a very clear sense of what was right. And it's only really when you have such a clear sense, such an authentically true sense of what is right and what is wrong, that you can come up with that sort of remark because it comes straight from the gut and uh, and so she spoke. But, you know, I'm just thinking over and above all the work that she did completely voluntarily for 30 years for the SAS, she also she was involved in so many other uh, items, uh, other areas, you know, the gun-free South Africa, she end conscription campaign, uh, and she was very involved with the church. How did she, in unearthing her whole history, did you manage to find out how she managed to do all this? Pre the well, days of cell phones, I have to say. Yes, which might have been part of why she managed to do it. <laughs> yes, true. Um, she worked tirelessly. I mean, it's legend that Sheena used to work at night. Neil did as well, her husband, on his work, but Sheena used to work late into the night and she used to get up in the morning and go to meetings. So she obviously had a level of energy that she nurtured by by working in the garden, by doing needlework, by, you know, reading. She loved reading. Um, thrillers as well, and, and one of her favorites was Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice as a kind of standard reading material. Every now and again, she went to the game reserves, to the bush, as the family called it, and I think replenished herself enormously through those things. But I think uh, my, my sense of you know becoming more familiar with her was that she was simply driven by the energy of of living her life to the full with everything that she had to give. She was clearly a brilliant woman and and she didn't she didn't stint on that and she had no pretension so she didn't have to waste a lot of time, you know, with with pretentious stuff. Mm-hmm. She she was warm and entertained a lot and as the arch says, smoked a lot. She also drank quite a lot, which some people found maybe a little bit difficult, but um, she she didn't ever sort of get to a point of any kind where she couldn't completely focus on the point. Mm. And I think, in a way, that's what's inspirational about her. If, if one lives one's life fully, if one inhabits one's full self, it's almost, it almost generates more self, it almost generates more energy. And, and she, she was such an example of that. And you know, Nancy, you say that, um, that she had a sense of right, and indeed she did, and it was very much based, she was a Christian, so it was very much based on her understanding of Christianity. But, but what was amazing about Sheena, and time and again people say this, is that she was also prepared to listen to other people. Mm-hmm. And this was in all aspects. She was completely um, into interfaith understanding of God. She didn't stick to the kind of narrow understanding of God. So her, her energy, her faith energy wasn't diminished by, by narrowing it and needing to focus on it. But she also would listen to people's opinions on things. And although she had a sense of what was right and although she very often was right, and although her fallback position was always, when in doubt, just do the next right thing, Sheena did not think that she had all the answers. And I think that is also what gave her strength. 
that she was able to open herself to other people and almost gain from them and grow from them or grow through their, her interactions with them. You describe somebody in the book, I mean, I was going to say, who's almost sort of saintly in the amount of work that she was able to do, but everybody has flaws one way or another. And a woman who works that hard, divides herself so much, sometimes feels massively guilty about not doing the right thing at home, but looking after her own children um, and just simply taking on too much. Any flaws that you see? You know, I interviewed over 70 people for the book, and, and one of the questions that I asked all of them I didn't have said questions but this was kind of one that I threw in all the time was exactly what you've just asked me now and I didn't want to write a hagiography but it was jolly hard not to because even her, her care of her children you know you, you speak about the potential to neglect well Sheena had an amazing husband Neil was extremely Extraordinary in the level of support that he offered as, as at that time particularly a father who was completely prepared to be hands-on take the girls to school look after them when Sheena went on international trips and national trips I mean Neil was absolutely there for her all the time and I think that made a big difference I think anybody who has someone who loves you and cares for you and respects your work and is there for you all the time also helps us to flourish. But um, it's Sheena's daughters, Lindsay and Kerry, who, by the way, are coming for the celebrations. They are in South Africa. Kerry lives in Morocco and Lindsay lives in Switzerland. But it was they who commissioned me to write this book. Mm. So there is no way that those two women feel in any way neglected yeah. or ever did. So I, I don't think I could... It would be hard for me to, you know, to find a flaw that for me was a flaw. I mean, a lot of people, even in the black sash, thought that it was outrageous that she didn't bother more about the way she looked, you know, the elastic past glasses kind of thing. And, 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 and that her clothes were often had holes in them, sometimes from tobacco falling on her jersey or sometimes just because she hadn't bothered to buy a new one. Um, and as I said, she drank a lot and smoked a lot and was very uh, sort of clear to, to say what she thought. So not everybody at dinner parties enjoyed her company. They thought that she was too much in your face. And really, white people in those days did not want to hear the truth. And Sheena was not one to keep quiet about the truth. So if those were flaws, then she was, those were her flaws. But I couldn't really find any others, yeah, I have yeah. to be honest. What a human being, aren't we all human beings, but what a very powerful human being. Um, 70 people, letters, the amount of research you've done, Anne-Marie, is absolutely extraordinary. And the sort of research that one can do because there are physical uh, archives, the sashes certainly have got archives, all sorts of things. So congratulations to you for wading through this lot and putting together such a lovely tribute for her daughters, Lindsay and Kerry. Just lastly, the 19th, um, it's the, the celebration of, uh, of the Black Sash, the 60 years. Is there to be a public celebration? Yes, there is. It's at 6 Bin Street uh, in Cape Town uh, at half past five. And if anyone would like to come, they should just... Uh, Hmm. They must RSVP, but now I'm not quite sure. I can't tell you her address offhand. And then for those in Johannesburg, for your listeners, um, there is one on the 23rd, on Saturday the 23rd, in the morning at the Women's Jail Atrium on Constitution Hill. Okay. And we are having a bit of a colloquium discussion there. Yeah. And people are welcome. Well, I feel quite sure that if anybody would like to know more or be part of it, they, they probably will know how to get there. Otherwise, if they check the Black Sash website, I would imagine all the information will be there. I imagine it won't be difficult to find out. Probably, yes. Anne-Marie, blessings. Well done. Thank you very much. And uh, and uh, now you can rest. Your, your work on Sheena is done. I imagine it's been quite, uh, quite time-consuming. Thank but thanks very much for your time. Thank you. You take care. Be well. Bye.
Sheena Duncan by uh, Anne-Marie Hendricks there. What, what, a, what a book indeed. And if you would like to know more, I feel quite sure it's published incidentally by Tiber Tree Press. But if you would like to know a little bit more about the Black Sash 60th anniversary celebrations happening on the 19th of May, um, do Google and I feel quite sure you'll find all the information there. Stay with us. was very lucky enough to spend a very happy couple of days or nearly a couple of days at the Frantic Literary Festival uh, over the last couple of days. Well, I met uh, all sorts of people, but amongst them I met a, a writer who's based in Ghana. She's of Ghanaian German heritage. She's Mamlu Kab Mamle Kabu. And, uh, in fact, she's going to be also here in Cape Town tomorrow night. She's going to be taking part in an intimate writer's networking session. And that's happening at the Book Lounge tomorrow night around about 5.30. But uh, Mamle, apart from being a wonderfully interesting person, is also the author of a book called The Kaya Girl and another one called The End of Skill, fascinating books. But uh, I got to, t uh, to talk to Mamle and I asked her first to tell us more a little bit about what she was doing here in South Africa. I'm here because I was invited to participate in the French Hook Literary Festival. Um, I have spoken on uh, a couple of panels so far. I'll be doing another one tomorrow. I've also been to a high school here, um, and I will be participating in an event in Cape Town on Monday. Uh, so that's why I'm here. Tell me a little bit about uh, going to the high school, because I think it's young adults that are particularly of interest to you. Um, no, that's not really true. I do write for young adults, but most of my writing so far has actually been for adults. Um, it's just that because I haven't yet released a, a full-length novel of my own, an adult novel, um, I'm known more for my young adult novel. Uh, but I have completed one, and I'm, I'm just working on it and hoping to submit it uh, this year. Uh, but uh, yes, the meeting at the school was great. In fact, I was just off the plane, literally, um, because I, I uh, flew in in the morning and uh, about 10 minutes after I arrived at the hotel there was a knock on my door and they were ready to take me to the school <laughs> um, so I hardly had time to catch my breath but um, and then I said well what's the plan and they said well there isn't really one you're just going to talk to the kids you know so I was with another writer uh, called Maria Palime yes uh, and uh, so well we just started off by telling them you know how we became writers and then uh, I asked them if any of them wrote um, and and, uh, well, it was fantastic because uh, we, one of them even ended up reciting a poem that he had written. Uh, and uh, it, was a, it was a great poem and we, we discussed it and the others, you know, um, said how they, what they thought the interpretation was. And we really had a great discussion. I found them very um, interested and, and warm and friendly. I told them that they were my very first experience of, of South Africa, so they had a big responsibility. Um, and uh, yes, I, I thought it was a very positive first experience. I loved it, actually. Yeah. And how did you become a writer? Um, I'm one of these people who always wanted to be one. I'm not quite sure where that impulse came from. I didn't have any writers in my family, but uh, but I did just always know, maybe maybe because I loved reading, and I thought this is something I would like to do too. Uh, and I read a lot as a child. I read the, the children's literature that was available in Ghana at that time, which was um, almost all foreign. Um, I read a lot of Enid Blyton, uh, because the, you know, there was just so much in Blyton in, in Af West Africa at the time. Uh, I read um, Lucy Maud Montgomery. She's still my favorite childhood author, Anna Green Gables. Um, and uh, well, I, I read as much as I could get um, hold of, really. And uh, and yeah, I was not quite sure how to go about becoming a writer. <laughs> it's not something that has a very clear cut career path. Um, but I was fortunate enough to meet a writer um, in my 20s, and uh, she w was very encouraging. She was an American writer, um, and she, she really encouraged me to write. But I, I was still very timid and, and fearful uh, and insecure about it. And eventually she started to send me calls for stories. Um, and then I thought, okay, well, it's time to, you know... Um, put the plan into action and so I submitted for the the calls that she sent me and I ended up getting some short stories published and that's how I started. Hmm. Yeah. It's one thing to be a writer, it's another thing to have something about which to write. Coming from Ghana, what stories were you wanting to tell? 
Uh, I think one can tell a story about anything one feels passionate about, really. Um, but in my particular case, I think perhaps being mixed race is, is one of the things that has stimulated a lot of thought processes for me, a lot of observations, um, and made me always have to see sort of both sides of things. So I think that's probably one of my major um, sources of inspiration. Uh, and then uh, my work, I, I work in social development in Ghana. Um, I've traveled um, very widely in the country because of that. I've, I've conducted a lot of field work. I've really had um, a deep insight into all the social inequities and wealth divides and uh, and the cultural complexity of Ghana. Ghana is a very culturally complex country. It's, it's wonderful in that respect. Um, and there is endless inspiration, um, not just social issues, but um, cultural, um, so many really. And uh, uh, so, yeah, my inspiration just comes from, from everyday life and from my work and from my own background. Endless inspiration, endless possibilities, endless stories, and, that you, yes. and yet you were reading Anne of Green Gables and Enid Blyton. <laughs> well, at that time. <laughs> hard to believe. Well, it's not hard to believe. Yes. Um, but does that mean that there are no children's books? And is this the gap? In, in Ghana, and is this the gap that you're looking to fill? Well, I don't want to really uh, reveal how old I am, but um, <laughs> things have changed since then, thank God. Um, so there is um, more homegrown literature available now uh, for Ghanaian children, thank God, um, because I think it's... Like what? Uh, well, for example, um, the Bert Award, which um, which I won in 2011, um, is, a, is a prize which is endowed, well, by a Canadian, so <laughs> we're not doing it all by ourselves. Um, but uh, it's for African writing. It's running in about five or six African countries, including Ghana. Uh, and uh, so it's, it's designed to stimulate homegrown writing. And uh, there was a Macmillan Prize as well, uh, which was running in Ghana for some time for children that had the same effect. There's also the Golden Baobab Prize. That one is based on the continent. That's a purely African prize. Um, and uh, so, so these prizes have stimulated a lot of um, homegrown writing for children. Uh, and there are also writers who are just finding their own voice and finding their own way to get their material out oh. there. Um, so, I, I suppose yeah. first prize really would be to have lots of readers rather than, I mean, prizes are wonderful because yes. it's money, but yes. it's the real prize would be to have people reading yes. what you're writing. That's are people it. reading what you're writing? Uh, at the moment, I... And what have you written? Tell me something. I've written um, a young adult novel called The Kaya Girl. Mm -hmm. uh, I've also written uh, a story I wrote for the Golden Barber Prize, which is not yet published. It's called um, flying Through Water. Uh, and uh, the Kaya Girl that is published, it hasn't had a very wide readership um, because I think uh, generally the, the readership, the reading public is small in Ghana. Um, literacy rates are, are low overall. Uh, and, and also um, the reading culture is low. Um, the practice of reading to children um, by parents on a regular basis is not so entrenched as it is in the West. Um, and also the availability of books um, beyond the sort of middle class availability, availability of books to children is limited. Uh, children in poor schools get very little or no access to supplementary reading materials. All they have is their textbooks. Um, and, uh, and many of them would love to have supplementary reading materials. I know this from talking to them. They will ask for storybooks. Um, and so they don't get that chance to um, develop a, a love of literature early. Uh, so the picture is still not fantastic, but it has improved. And uh, also there are some literary platforms that are encouraging writing um, among Ghanaian writers. And I'm involved in one of them. Um, Writers Project for Ghana. I was thinking about it when you were talking about your your program, um, and the Writers Project is um, still a fairly young uh, initiative, and we try to give writers a platform to share their work. Uh, we have a radio program, we have a, a monthly reading series, and also writers workshops and book clubs, um, and it has um, it has attracted so many people who want to participate in in the creative writing world. Uh, we have a lot of young writers um, coming to the fore. This way. It's quite exciting um, and people really wanting to participate in, in the workshops and, and the events. Um, so there is more of a platform now than there used to be, but it's still, um, there's still a long way to go. And are you going to be part of that long way? Do you see yourself as a, a mentor or are you still a mentee? What do you, what do you feel your role is personally? 
Um, I've always had to strike a balance between earning a living and being a writer, <laughs> but um, I've enjoyed, I, I just, there's nothing I love more than when somebody tells me about my book, you know, it's just the most humbling experience and I've interacted with some school children who have read my book and they just own it and I find that so awe-inspiring. Um, it's like, I don't know, books take on a life for the reader uh, that is entirely different to um, the way from from what they are for the writer because when you're the writer you know it and uh you've created it so it can't surprise you um but and and also you you you, you just cannot um uh the characters cannot be for you the way they are for a reader because for a reader they just they just live you know um and and they can live for you too but you know that you invested them with life and it's just a different experience so when somebody tells you about your book and the way that they experience the character and so on is is just one of the most wonderful things actually so um i think yes that's an effect that i would love to have more for children so and that would be by writing more and sharing sharing publishing and sharing my writing um i've also facilitated um a couple of workshops i facilitated one on young adult writing and one on uh, women's writing in Uganda and I found those experiences extremely rewarding and I'd love to do more of that. Um, at the moment my professional life doesn't give me much time to do it but I, I do hope later on to do a lot more of that. Yes. I think you're going to be doing some of it right here in Cape Town uh, on Monday. You're going to be giving some workshops. Um, to be honest with you, I'm not sure exactly what the program is, but I know there's a networking event. Um, and uh, yes, I, I heard there might be a workshop and um, I'm not sure exactly what the program is, but whatever it is, I, I think I'm ready for it. Um, and I, I would love to engage with young writers um, or writers in general in Cape Town. Uh, it's been very exciting to be with South African writers here at Friendship and uh, to attend all the um, sessions um, and I, I really enjoyed speaking to the children. Uh, all over the world you find the same patterns that you know um, people, there are many people who are writing or trying to express themselves creatively but are not sure how to do it, how to go about it, how to find a platform um, and uh, and so I, I knew when we visited the school and had that audience of, of young teenagers that there would be some people among them who wanted to write or who were writing or were you know um, expressing themselves in other forms of creative arts. It's just um, one of those things that is a given, you know. Um, and so you can find the writing spirit or the the artistic spirit all over the world. And I think it's something that just crosses boundaries. I always feel at ease when I'm I'm dealing with people. People who are interested in writing and um, I don't feel I need a whole lot of preparation I feel I can just connect with that spirit and people the interest and the the creative urge um, and it's it's very enjoyable I really love that um, fellowship and that community of, of creative people yes it's a given and a gift <laughs> <laughs> moving on from Enid Blyton uh, <laughs> do you have any favorite African writers Oh my God, so many. I, I don't even know where to start. Um, I, I think um, many of my favorite African writers are Nigerian, starting with Chinua Achebe, um, whose book, Things Fall Apart, I've probably read more times than any other book. Um, and uh, and then I've, I've just been so lucky, because since I became a writer, I've met so many writers. And that is probably the single best thing about being a writer. Um, I just love being with writers. Found your tribe. I'm telling you. <laughs> They're crazy like me, but, you know, it works. Um, and uh, so, yes, I've read many African writers, um, not just because they're good but also because I've met them and I've got to know them and I'm curious and um, and I have many favorites um, I think if I start in Ghana um, I have a colleague called Martin Eglogwe who is a colleague on the Writers Project um, I admire his writing because um, it's breaking boundaries um, for, for Ghana anyway it's, it's very philosophical, very metaphysical um, and I've enjoyed reading him um, and uh, and then in Nigeria, yes, I, I, I really enjoyed um, Shinra Achebe um, in my, when I first came across his writing. I've met so many Nigerian writers since then. Um, I've enjoyed Sefi Atta's work, um, Chimamanda Adichie, um, and uh, yeah, I can't think of, of names right now, but um, I do have many, many favorites among Nigerian writers. Um, Trisha Adaobi, 
Uh, Noel Bani is another favorite. She wrote, I do not come to you by chance. Um, I've also enjoyed um, a lot of Kenyan writers. and um, Yeah, I'm, I'm not very good at remembering things off the cuff, but, but I, I do have many favorites. And in fact, African writing is what I've read most of in recent years because I've been moving uh, with African writers and I've picked up so many books. At festivals like this, you just go home with a suitcase full of books and, and then you end up, I've probably you know, become imbalanced in my <laughs> geographical scope of reading because of that, because I'm sort of catching up all the time with books by friends and, and, um, and most of them are, are from Africa. Well, for one who professes not to have a good memory for names she didn't half do badly, that was Mamele Kabo, Ghanaian German author, and she was at the, the Friendship Literary Festival. And if you are interested to know a little bit more about what she what she has to say, her books incidentally are called The Kaya Girl, I bought myself a copy, and The End of Skill. But she will be there at the Book Lounge tomorrow night. She's going to be uh, part of the African Arts Institute, who warmly invite you to come along to an intimate writer's networking session on Monday the 18th of May at the Book Lounge. That's between half past five and half past seven. So if you'd like to meet Mumley in person, that would be the place to be. And don't forget, you can keep in touch with us, books at safm.co.za if there's anything that you'd like to know. Not sure that I got all of the names of the writers that she mentioned there, so don't be asking me in too much detail, but I will do my very best. So you're listening to SAFM Literature, and what we're going to have just now is a whole whack of poetry, so stay tuned. So whole whack of poetry, we're going to give you as much as we possibly can. We were to have spoken to Pat Schoenstein, who has recently published a great big fat pink book of poems called Heart of Africa, poems of love, loss and longing, but it's a shame she's lost her voice post the, uh, the festival, so hopefully she'll be better soon. But the, um, the, the festival, Friendship Literary Festival, was awash with poetry. There was recitations, there were debates, there were panel discussions. It was really lovely, and it was all... Um, was were curated by Alexander Matthews of Aerodrome, the website. So of the many poets that we could be speaking to, we have two. We Hopefully we're going to get Tabo Jijana in just a minute. He's a journalist, a poet and an author, going to be talking to us as he was at the festival about millennials, why they're writing poetry and what exactly it is that they're writing about. Whilst we wait for him, we do have on the line Adrian van Beek, who is about my, about whom I don't know a whole lot, but he's Adrian the Diff van Veek, and he talked about the, the difference between performed and published poetry. So let's start with you, Adrian. Hi there. Uh, good, uh, good afternoon, Nancy. Thanks for having me. No, it's a pleasure. The Diff, tell me about m the middle bit of your name. Uh, it's just Adrian Diff van Veek. Um, I'm uh, the curator of the Inzing Poetry Sessions based in the English Department of Stellenbosch University. So it's a uh, poetry platform that concentrates and uh, focuses all its attention on the beauties within the differences of different poetry. So well, our tagline is the ending poetry session, the place where the poetries meet. Okay, that's really, uh, that's really, that's a very fertile spot where the poetries meet because there's poetry, poetry and poetry, isn't there? What about yes. you? What about you as a poet? Do you write a lot and how long have you been writing? Uh, well, I'm a, I've been performing actively since the age of 17, and I've been writing since, I mean, I, I come from a family of writers, academic and um, various types of writing. So I've been writing actively since the age of 12, but perform um, converting that into performance since the age of 17. I can't help but drawing attention to your name. Any relation to Chris? Oh, no, not actually, but my father's name is Chris. Oh, <laughs> so, okay. My father's name is Chris, and my mother, who's actually a big fan of your show, listening right now, she did. So, um, no no relation, but I'm sure the, the, the name has some power <laughs> to, to the writing style yeah, at the moment. absolutely, absolutely. In fact, there was a, a wonderful tribute to Chris Van Vega at the festival. So, Adrian, I think that one of the panel discussions that you were on, I can't remember the exact title of it, but you were discussing the, the difference between poetries, as you call them, performed and published. For you, what's the diff? Um, I mean, in the discussion yesterday we had at the festival, um, Alexander posed the question as to the, the differences between page and stage poetry and um, actually just exploring what the differences is um, are. But sometimes we, as as writers and people enjoy reading poetry, we sometimes 
uh, enhance the differences by trying to debate the page and stage this this continuous debate that that goes on and it, it's actually all the same thing at the end of the day <laughs> and trying to yeah. find the divisions between them it, it, there's, there's no use in it yeah. because at the end of the day it's all the same thing um, and defining it the entire time and over defining it sometimes becomes this exclusive thing where poetry yeah. is with a capital P but poetry has always been a platform for 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 everyone to engage in yeah you, you've got to give the academic something to get their teeth into but but I do hear you but I you say that there's really no difference but when you're writing a piece of poetry I'm assuming that you hear it in your head and and the way you're going to say it is very different from the way it, it gets written I mean you've been performing since the age of 17 when you're writing are you hearing yourself say it? Um, when I'm writing it, it's, it's all about uh, the message that, I, that I'm trying to construct, which I'm trying to speak about something that has moved me. So uh, yesterday, the news, Newfield actually made a good point where that state of writing is in itself a performance. Hmm. Um, that state of writing it where you actually have to, where your brain has to work in a certain way in order to, to write this poem, that is a performance. Your, your body and your mind is going into a performative state. Um, and sometimes the, well, just the poet reading their poems, and it could be in this monotone performance style, that is in itself a performance. So the, the, any, anything that is read out is, is, is inevitably a performance. Yeah. I suppose it depends with what sort of power you put it out. There was also at the festival, I think, where the exclusive books was, there was uh, an open mic and people were invited to go and do their stuff. And some people had more pull than others because some people had more power in their voice. We're talking of power. We got on the line. We've got Tabo Dijana with us. Are you with us now, Tabo? Yes, I am. Yes, hi. Welcome. Welcome to the conversation. Tabo, journalist, poet and author. Um, I was just about to say to Adrian, what is it that he, what is his message? What is it that he's writing about? But your conversation at the festival was all about millennials. Why are millennials writing poetry and what is it that they're writing about? Let's start with the what is it that they're writing about? What are they writing about? Well, we had a, a pre-discussion about the word or the term millennials um, to begin with, um, and you and you were saying that um, it's hard enough to define what a, a born free is in South Africa. How do you define a millennial? Um, you know, it's the fact that I was born in 1988. Um, does that determine? Uh, does that make me belong to a certain movement? Um, so we're saying that millennial uh, is, sounds to us as young poets um, as nothing more than a marketing gimmick because yeah. it does not denote a political stance. It does not denote any sense of identity for us. Um, but I guess the people that belong to that group, uh, the millennials, to, um, to answer your question, writes about stuff that touches them personally. Um, and that's only because they live in a very individualized world and and what comes first is always what touches you personally. Yeah, that's a jolly good point you make about the, the handles that we give generations, I mean, Generation X, and I think in this case somebody's called it Generation Y, W-H-Y, um, Millennials, you know, Baby Boomers, all these things are all just sort of terminologies. When, and I can see that that could be a little bit patronizing. But it, given that there is a, a particular age group that we're talking about here, what are the things that are preoccupying them, would you say, if indeed we can sort of generalize? Yeah, I, I don't know if you can generalize, um, because my feeling is that uh, the, poet, the poetry uh, community in South Africa is so fractured. Um, I mean, I was there my first time at the FLF this year, and I discovered so many voices, so many poets, uh, seeing them for the first time. And not because I don't read poetry, but because we are so far away from each other, there's no there's no community to speak of um, and I guess that's why the festival is important and bringing these poets together I mean the same applies to the sort of issues we write about as poets um, I'm, I mean I was in the panel that we were discussing millennials uh, 
yesterday. Uh, I was sitting with Kyle from Durban and uh, Jaleen Phillips from uh, the Western Cape. And, I mean, there are vast differences, not only in our identities, but just in the sort of poetry um, we write and, 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 and the backgrounds we come from. Um, and I think that's probably the same uh, situations with other poets or with poetry uh, written by our age group everywhere in the country. Mm. Well, Adrian, that bring, I'm sure you can hear what Tabo is saying. It brings us back to what you were saying. You know, the interest is is in the difference, really. It's in the sort of schism where where things are very different, and that's where the excitement happens. Adrian, can I press you? You talked about it being very important that you know your whole body is putting together these words around your message. Your messages, in particular, can you can you define what your messages are? Oh well, <laughs> I mean the the like language is limitless, right? Language is we can go into our take journeys into our vocabularies, and we can uh, mess- new messages can come up every day. New messages can be can be written every day. So um, poetry is, is this exciting platform that I've discovered in my life that has. Um, put things into perspective for me. So whether it be um, exploring my identity, um, exploring um, the, the situation, different situations and climates within our country at the moment, um, various things. I, yeah, I can't. I can't put it under one umbrella. In trying to try and put a, a definition of it, yeah. where it, it, it is. I mean, it, it's infinite. The, Language is infinite, and what we can do with language is infinite. And we sometimes, I feel that um, to over, you know, over theorize about poetry sometimes does take away its um, endless beauties and endless mm-hmm. possibilities that the language helps us to to do. So, I mean, my messages are up till now. It's, it's been also a thing of sometimes within. Um, performance poetry communities, there's been this, uh, uh, I mean, it's just the bad is being spoken about and bad, uh, bad things are being verbalized. Uh, where I've uh, also just, I mean, that's, a, that's important and it's very important to, to um, you know, put, put that, uh, to speak about these, Record it, yeah. Yeah, these difficult, difficult conversations. But also, we need to speak about the happy things as well. Yeah. We need to speak about things that make us happy. Yeah. Um, because we, we're not just, we're not a, a people that that won't overcome. And speaking about that overcoming is very important. It sure is, guys. We, I'm afraid we've run out of time, but it's really lovely to hear what you both have to say. Tabo Jajana, very best of luck. Thank you very much, and may you be whatever you are, and perhaps not um, in any particular category. You'll be absolutely individual. Blessings. Thank you very much. And Adrian thank Van Vake, thank you very much, too. And I guess the thing is that one, one of the things about poetry is that you are able to touch people, and I think there was a great deal of touching and sensation out there, people listening to other people's poetry. Lovely.